If you'll find your place in your Bible with me today at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read in just a few moments, uh, verses 10 to 17. And we begin a new series of messages today I've entitled, Dear Paul. I'll explain that to you in just a few minutes. Over the coming weeks, and it's going to be many weeks, we're going to be coming back to 1 Corinthians again and again. We're not going to study every verse of 1 Corinthians, but we're going to study the major portions of 1 Corinthians. There's so much there that needs to be said in our world today. Uh, This was a church that was in the middle of a culture war, and it has much to say to our churches today that are in the middle of a culture war. And so we'll be coming back to this again and again. We have a guest speaker that's coming a little bit later. We have some holidays we have to observe or going to observe. We don't have to observe them, but we want to observe them. And we'll be observing those holidays. But when we're not doing those things, we're coming back to 1 Corinthians over and over again. I invite you to follow along with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Lord, as we begin a new series of messages that's going to take us many weeks to cover, I pray, Lord, that you will help us to see how we can be a shining light in a dark world. Pray, Lord, that you'll help us to see how you can use our church and churches like ours to impact the society that is around us I pray, Lord God, that today you'll open our hearts and open our ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to us and cause us, Lord, in these coming weeks to see a special visitation of you from on high, even in our own church. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you are probably familiar with Ann Landers. Uh, It was a pen name that was used in the Chicago Sun-Times as an advice columnist, and it was actually begun by a woman named Ruth Crowley in 1943. But it appeared, because it was syndicated in the newspapers, many of our newspapers, uh, for years and years. And you could go and you could read each time the paper would come with that particular syndicated column in it, and you could hear what advice she was giving to people. Today, uh, a more familiar advice columnist is Dear Abby. Uh, That was started by a lady named Pauline Phillips. Uh, Her pen name was Abigail Van Buren. She's no longer writing that, but her daughter has picked up that advice column, and she carries it on in 
uh, the name of her mother in that pen name that her mother started. But both of these are columns where people are asking questions. Uh, they they want to know questions about relationships. They want to know answers to questions about ethics, about morals, about different things in life, etiquette sometimes. And sometimes if you've read any of these columns, I've read a, a number of uh, Dear Abbeys, I've read some of Ann Landers, but if you've read any of these columns, sometimes they are incredibly hilarious as well. Some of the things that people ask and some of the answers that are given can be hilarious. I start this series of messages that way because what I want you to understand about 1 Corinthians is it's sort of like an advice column, if you will, from the Apostle Paul. The church in Corinth was in trouble and there were difficulties that were in their midst and they were having struggles and they wrote a letter to Paul with some questions in that letter that they wanted Paul to give them advice about how to deal with these things. Now, please understand when we talk about 1 Corinthians, we're not talking about human advice. This is divine advice. We're not something that you, can, that you can take or leave. This is not something you can take or leave. This is something that's divinely given by God and his instruction to mankind. So in that sense, uh, Paul's advice is different than what is the advice of Ann Landers or Dear Abby. But nevertheless, he's answering questions that were given to him. And in addition to those questions, there were things that he was hearing, things that were being reported to him about what was going on in the city of Corinth. And so Paul, under the inspiration of God, sits down and he pens this letter. And he answers those questions and he addresses those issues that he's heard about. And he's giving godly advice from, a, from, from the apostle of Christ. And that's the godly advice that I pray that we will hear as we go through this series. If I can just take a few moments to introduce you to the city of Corinth. It's 45 miles from Athens, Greece. Uh, if you get to go to Athens, Greece, probably you're going to take a tour down uh, to Corinth. It's a port city. And consequently, there's a lot of traffic in and out of the city. There's a lot of trade that goes on in and out of this city. When you think about Corinth, if you can think about the Isthmian Games, the Isthmian Games were a, a smaller version of the Olympic Games. And so that brought people to the city on a regular basis because of the athletic competitions that were somewhat like the Olympic Games, but to a smaller scale. But maybe when you think about Corinth, maybe the best way for you to think about it is to think about the worst parts of Las Vegas, Nevada, or the worst parts of New York, New York, or the worst parts of Los Angeles, California, or for that matter, the worst parts of any of our major cities. I say that because I want you to understand that what was going on in the city of Corinth, in every stretch of the imagination, it was filled with evil everywhere. One of the things that was there that brought a lot of people was the temple to Aphrodite, the temple of Aphrodite, or Diana as her other name is. She is the goddess of love. There were as many as a thousand prostitutes who worked around that temple that was a part of the worship of Aphrodite. And you stop and you think about that kind of behavior and that kind of conduct and how it spread throughout that entire area. 
people coming for that very purpose, people traveling in and out, trading, doing business there so that they could come and they could participate in the worship of Aphrodite and all of these other kinds of evils. It was everywhere. If there was ever a church that was in the middle of a cultural war, the Corinthian church was in the middle of that cultural war. You do recognize that today our churches, our Bible-believing churches, are in the middle of a culture war. It's all around us. Uh, The seediest parts of society are very prevalent and very obvious for everybody to take notice of and all of us know about, especially with the 24-hour news cycle, especially with social media. We see it and we hear it and we know about it and we know the evils of it. And that's the kind of place where this church in Corinth could be found. You learn about this church back in Acts chapter 18. The Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he makes this trip down to Corinth, and while he's there, he begins preaching the gospel as he did everywhere he went. And he won people to Jesus Christ, and he began discipling people in the faith. And he organized these people together, and a church was born in the city of Corinth because of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He spent 18 months in this city, at least 18 months in this city, preaching the gospel, winning people to Christ, discipling them, bringing them into the church, getting them moving in the direction of following Jesus Christ. 18 plus months he spent in this city. You can imagine, he poured out his life, he poured out his heart, he gave himself over and over again to these people because he loved them and he wanted to see them come to know the fullness of Jesus Christ in their lives. When he leaves... There's another man who comes in behind him, and his name is Apollos. Apollos was a a wonderful man of the Scripture. He He was an apologist, if you will. He was able to take the Old Testament Scriptures and show how they're fulfilled in Christ so that Jews who were listening to him couldn't refute him. He was so mighty in the Scriptures. And there's even the indication that Peter may have come. Cephas here in our text is the Aramaic name for Peter. There's some indication that maybe, because Peter is mentioned three or four times in this letter, there's some indication that maybe even Peter visited this city with his wife on an occasion. But the bottom line is, is that this was a church that had had great leadership. This was a church that had had wonderful people who had come to present the gospel, who had come to disciple them, who had come to help them get moving in the right direction. And yet, in spite of that leadership, this church was in turmoil. And here's what's interesting. Before the Apostle Paul addresses some of the most important issues in Scripture, for instance, he will address in this particular book, this first uh, first letter of Corinthians, he will address things uh, like spiritual growth. We don't want to be carnal. We want to be spiritual. He'll address things like the judgment seat of Christ. We're all going to stand before Christ and give an account of our lives as to whether they are rewardable or not, whether we should receive rewards from him or not. He's going to talk about marriage and morality. He's going to talk about the Lord's Supper and the proper observance of communion. He's going to talk about 
uh, the, the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ and the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus. But what's interesting is before he addresses any of those major subjects, what you and I would consider to be major subjects before he addresses any of them, he attacks the central issue of disunity in the fellowship. You understand that if this congregation continued in the fashion they were going, there soon wouldn't be a church in Corinth because they would become splintered from one another and how sad that would have been. And so before he addresses any of the major issues that you and I often think of when we think of 1 Corinthians, he talks about the importance of the unity of the body of Christ, that we cannot be splintered amongst ourselves, that we must be united around the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to look back to chapter 1 for just a moment, and I want you to see after the first three verses, which is his introduction and the salutation that he gives, that he talks about this church being an incredibly blessed congregation, an incredibly blessed congregation. You notice in the middle of verse 4, he says, for the grace of God which was given to you. That's, that's a gift the grace of God given to you, the very next verse, verse 5, that you were enriched in, in everything in him or by him. If you look down to verse 7, he says, so that you come short in no gift. Or you get to verse 8, he says, who will also confirm you. To confirm means to put something beyond doubt. He'll confirm you to the end. You're eternally secure, and you're held in the hand of Jesus Christ. And in verse 9, he says, you were called into the fellowship of his son. I mean, these incredible blessings that have been poured out on this congregation of people that are in the city of Corinth. Look at all of the benefits that God has given to you. Look at all of the blessings that he's poured out on you. You are a gifted church. May I just tell you that all of those things that he talks about are the things that God does for every church. And every church is a gifted body that has been given these gifts and enriched by Christ himself that comes short in no gift. Do you understand? This was a gifted church, and yet this gifted church found themselves at war with each other. They found themselves in conflict with each other, and if they didn't stop it, they were going to splinter into nothing. They had to come together in unity with one another. I pick up again in verse 9, excuse me, verse 10, and I have you to note as we go through this, and I explain some of it to you. He says, now, in light of all of these blessings that God has given you as a church, now I plead with you. The word plead gives us our word encourager or encouragement. He doesn't come to demand. He doesn't come with a hammer. He doesn't come giving, uh, he doesn't come giving edicts. He comes and he pleads with them. He comes and offers them entreaty. He comes and he begs of them. He says, listen to me, please, please. He says, I plead with you. He's pleading with them. And you'll notice he says, I plead with you brethren. He uses that word again in verse 11, brethren. As a matter of fact, I would tell you that the one-third of the uses of this kind of family language in the writings of the apostle Paul, one-third 
of the uses of the writings in the writings of Paul of this kind of family language, brethren, which in most cases means brothers and sisters in Christ, but it's the family language. One third of them are found here in 1 Corinthians. One third of all of them are found here in 1 Corinthians. Why? Because Paul doesn't come throwing his weight around as an apostle of Christ. He comes offering the advice, the godly advice of an apostle of Jesus, and he comes to what is his family, people that he loves dearly, and he pleads with them, and he begs with them. And what does he plead with them about? He says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And we're going to come back to that verse in a few minutes, or maybe not in a few minutes, maybe next week. And we're going to talk about those three things that he says, but all three of them are him saying that I'm pleading with you, family. I'm pleading with you. This division that's amongst you, this conflict that's going on with you, this splintering that's going to happen if you don't stop it, I'm pleading with you, family. you got to come together into unity. you got to come together into unity. And where did he learn about these kinds of things that were going on? On this occasion, we find out in verse 11, for it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, my family, by those of Chloe's household. Now, that's an unusual thing. Most of the time when you're addressing a household, you do it by addressing the man of the house, the husband in the house. This may have been a widow. Chloe may have been a widow. But somebody out of her house, somebody who was a believer in Jesus Christ, somebody who has contact with Paul, who's writing this letter from the city of Ephesus, Somebody who's able to communicate with the Apostle Paul tells him, what does he tell them? He says that there are contentions among you. There are contentions among you. Hey, friends, that's a different word than the word divisions in verse 10. Division speaks of factions. But the word contentions, it refers to hot disputes. That's what the lexicon says about the word. It refers to hot disputes. If you want to get an idea of how it must have been in the city of Corinth, just turn a page over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you will. And look at what it says in verse 3. He says, for you are still carnal for where there are, and here comes our words, envy, strife, divisions among you. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Or if you'll let me just read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where a year or so later, he writes this second letter to the church. And he mentions these very things. Listen, he says, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, backbiting, whispering, that's gossip, conceits, that's arrogance, and tumults, that's riots. I'd say that's pretty severe, wouldn't you? I'd say that's pretty much hot disputes. And what are they in hot dispute about? Surely, pastor, it's got to be some over some particular doctrine that they're in disagreement about. I want you to note in the next few moments that there is no evidence that the disagreements that they were having with each other was over any form of doctrine. 
Every time the Apostle Paul confronted error when it came to doctrine, if you read any of his other letters, any time Paul came across error in doctrine in any of his other letters, he dressed it down immediately. He took it on immediately. He spoke to it directly. The division here that's going on in this congregation is not over a matter of doctrine. Listen to what it's about. Verse 12. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? By the way, something else for you to note is that there is no evidence and there is no indication that any of these three men, Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, had anything to do. They weren't egging this on. They weren't encouraging this division. But what was happening within the congregation? The people were picking out their favorite preacher. And they were building a fan club around that preacher. And they were rallying people to that particular preacher. And if he wasn't speaking on that given Sunday, then they didn't care to be there on that given Sunday. Uh, if they were talking about the differences in the two preachers, then they would have hot debates and arguments about the, the, the two different preachers and the style of the two different preachers. Do you see what he's saying here? The conflict was over, are you hearing me? It was over personalities and style. It was over personalities and style. You can understand why some of the people would have been greatly affectionate toward the Apostle Paul. He had come to the city. He had won many of them to Christ. He had discipled them in the faith. He had helped this church to get off the ground and get moving in the direction toward following Jesus. And you can understand as being the founding pastor, the founding preacher, you can understand why it would have been so important for them to, to love Paul. When you think about Apollos, do you know what the Scripture tells us in Acts 18 about Apollos? That he was a man who was excellent in the Scriptures. He was a man who was deeply knowledgeable about the Word. As I mentioned earlier, he was a great apologist when it came to taking the Old Testament and proving that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that he was, in fact, the Messiah. There were Jews that couldn't say anything against what Apollos had to say because he was so convincing in his argument. But even more so, Apollos was the silver-tongued preacher. He was the orator. He was the one when he stood before the congregation to speak and to preach. The one who came in after Paul, when he stood to preach, everybody sat on the edge of their seats. that They couldn't hardly stand it. He spoke so eloquently. He was an orator. And people listened in that fashion. And some people loved Apollos. Cephas, I don't know exactly why they would have been divided over Cephas. He might have come to the city. He might have preached in the city on, a time, on, a, on an occasion or two. Maybe more than anything, it was because Peter was there on the day of Pentecost and he was the one who stood up and he's the one who preached that great message and 3,000 people were saved at the end of it in Acts chapter 2 and maybe because he is sort of the patriarch, one of the patriarchs of the church that they're holding to Peter. And then there's the crowd that says, I'm of Christ. 
There's a lot of confusion about what's meant by I'm of Christ. These could be the Apostle Paul's words used rhetorically in order to jump into what he says next. Is Christ divided? I think probably more likely these are the words of a crowd or a group within the congregation that says, you know, we don't really need a church body. We really don't need a pastor or a preacher. We've got Jesus. Or if it wasn't that, this was a group of people who said, you know, we're the super spiritual crowd. We sort of exceed everybody else. We're, we're sort of, we're, we're exceeding that group of Paul and that group of Apollos and that group of Cephas or Peter. Maybe that's the kind of arrogance they portrayed. But I want you to understand they were divided over personalities and over style. Had nothing to do with doctrine. These men themselves were not encouraging this. They weren't behind this. These were people who had decided to group themselves, make cliques amongst themselves and say, I like Paul and I like Apollos and I like Cephas. To divide themselves among themselves among themselves, and in the process caused the church to be in, in turmoil, caused the church to be in conflict. Now, before you get too judgmental and say, why in the world would they ever do such a thing? Friends, the church of Jesus Christ in America does it all the time. Over personalities and style. Well, I like the old hymns, or I like the new contemporary music. I like that preacher, when you wore the suit and the tie and the nice fancy leather dress shoes, or I like it better when you dress down. I like this and I like that and I like this and I like that. And all of it, most everything, almost all of it is a matter of personalities and a matter of style that causes division. I'd like a teal colored carpet or I'd like a Blue colored carpet. I want screens or I want to sing out of a hymn book. It's a matter of personalities and it's a matter of style. And this congregation was at war with one another. They were going to splinter into nothing if they didn't stop this. And Paul comes and he says, look, family, family, get together here. Come on, listen to me now. Pay attention. I'm encouraging you. I'm pleading with you. I'm begging you, please, please, let's not do this anymore. Let's come together in unity. And not let Satan divide us over personalities and over styles. Can I just tell you that if you live through 2020 and 2021, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I think you should wear a mask. And if you don't wear a mask, you don't care about people. I think you shouldn't wear a mask because that makes you a subservient person to the government. I think this and I think that and all of it together creating that kind of divisiveness. How utterly foolish that is to be divided amongst ourselves over personalities and over styles. Some of you might like to hear Jeremy or Tim or Bill or Nathan or Matt more than you like to hear me. But we're not in competition with each other. We're co-laborers together. We look over again at chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in verse 4. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Do you see it? This is not about personalities, and this is not about style. This is about our God. Coming together in unity around our God. Um, I was reading some comments recently that I had seen over the last few weeks. Some comments that I had seen where people who are members here but not attending here, were bragging about a particular preacher that they were listening to and live streaming and watching online on the internet. When I read those comments, several of them, I was at first hurt. And then out of that hurt started to grow jealousy. Jealousy. Why do they want to listen to them, but they won't come listen to me? Why do they like that ministry, but they don't like our ministry? Why will they support them, but they won't support us? Why do they say nice things about them, but they don't say nice things about us? And jealousy was growing in my heart. By the way, this is over a matter of a day, maybe two days. One day, I was riding in my car, and Mary called me on the phone, and I answered in my car, and uh, we had conversation about the schedule that we had, how we we're going to meet up for the schedule that we had, and going to blend everything together to get everything done that needed to be done. And I, I told her, I said, before, before we hang up, can I tell you something that's bothering me? It's the only person I talk to like this, except this morning when I come to tell, what, several hundred people? <laughs> this is the only, only, only person, she's the only person that I really talk to in, in this fashion. And I said, I said, honey, I'm... I'm I'm battling with myself. I said, I'm jealous. I'm jealous. And I went through what I had read, and I went through what I had seen, and what I had heard, and what I have been feeling from some of these, uh, some of these individuals. And I said, I'm just jealous in my loving and kind and merciful wife said over the phone, that's just your pride. I had to pull over to the side of the road to, gra to, to gather myself for a few moments. That's just your pride. Nobody else could probably have said that to me but her. And she didn't say it in an unkind way, by the way. But I heard the words she said and I realized, you know, my attitude ought to be the attitude of the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians where there were preachers who were preaching and causing him greater problems. He was in prison and they were preaching and causing him greater problems by their preaching. They were making his chains even more difficult to bear. And what does, Peter, what does Paul say? Paul says, they preach Christ and therein I rejoice. And suddenly God slapped me upside the face and said, David, this isn't about you. 
This isn't about you. This is about me. This is about our Savior. This is about our God. It doesn't matter who God uses as long as God is using someone to bring Christ-likeness in the message of the gospel to their lives. That's what matters most. And yet we get so caught up with personalities and style and personalities and style. I'm, remembered, I'm reminded of the pastor. His name was Pastor Smith. And he went to a church and he was dearly loved. He was one of those great speakers. And people were driving from great distances in order to come and hear him. But he took a day for a Sunday for a holiday, and he had a guest preacher. When people recognized during the singing the first hymn that the Pastor Smith wasn't there, that a guest preacher was there, when the hymn ended, several people got up to begin to walk out of the church to leave because Pastor Smith wasn't preaching that day. And the guest preacher walked to the pulpit, and he said, All of you who have come to worship Pastor Smith may leave. All of you who have come to worship Christ may stay. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're divided not over doctrine. They're, they're divided. These preachers are not encouraging this to go on. These are people who have taken up their preferences, and everybody has preferences. Everybody has preferences. Preferences are inevitable. Demanding them is inexcusable. Preferences are inevitable. Demanding them is inexcusable. And here was the church at odds with one another and fighting against each other over the preference of a personality or a particular style of ministry. And they were fighting with each other and they were going to splinter into nothing if they didn't stop at church. Stop it. Come together into unity. I appeal to you as the family of God. Don't do this. Come together in unity around Jesus Christ, he is the one who matters. I was, um, many years ago, I was standing in the coat room of our, our, our church building, what we call now the Family Life Building. When you came in those, those front doors, I was 25 when I came here in 1982. When I came in those front doors, they weren't glass doors then, they were wooden doors. And you came in those wooden doors, you walked into a vestibule area. If you turned to the left, you went either the stairs up to the attic room or you went to the stairs that took you down to a hallway where all the classrooms were for Sunday school classes and children's church and nurseries and so forth. If you went straight forward, you walked right into the auditorium and the vestibule was so small, you couldn't really stand there for any length of time in, in fellowship with people. You either had to fellowship outside or you had to go on into the auditorium and fellowship inside the auditorium. But if you turned to the right, you walked into a coat room. Now, being a Georgia boy, I had never seen a coat room before. But you walked into a coat room. It didn't take me long that winter to realize why you got a coat room. But above where you, where you hang the coats or hung the coats were the pictures of all the pastors. The church started in the spring of 1942. I came in the winter of 1982. Forty years, all the pictures of the pastors were hanging up there. There were nine of them. One of them had been here twice, so you could say ten, but we'll leave it at nine for this moment because it doesn't change the equation that much. I walked into that 
coat room. I walked into that building to begin with, which I did every single day, multiple times a day, a lot every single day. And I turned into that coat room and I went in just to stare up at all of these pictures, these big pictures of the faces of all of these pastors. At the bottom, they had the beginning date and the ending date, the beginning date, the ending date, the beginning date, the ending date, from 1942 to 1982. And I started doing the math. 42 years, 40 years divided by nine, 42 years divided by nine equals out to be a little bit more than four or right at four and a half years. Some stayed longer than four and a half, some stayed less than four and a half, but it worked out to be about four and a half years, about four and a half years per man average at the church. And that's when it hit me. One day, your picture is going to hang there. Your picture is going to hang there. Now, the only advantage I have is that I've stayed the next 40 years so that we, didn't, we, we could take down that coat room in those pictures. <laughs> That's the advantage. But I stood there and I realized, you know what? There's going to be a personality after me, and there's going to be a style that's different to me, and they're coming, it's coming, that day's coming. Are you here to worship Jesus? Are you here to honor God? Are you here to win people to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you here to disciple others in the faith and help them to grow? You realize I've been the pastor of this church for half its life. You talk about feeling old, that'll make you feel old really quick. But those days, I hope, aren't in the near future, but those days are passing quickly. And the church cannot be divided over I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas and I'm of this particular man or that particular man and I only like this pastor and I only listen to this pastor. Listen, there's going to be another pastor. There's going to be another style. There's going to be another personality than my personality. There's going to be another gifting than my gifting. But we don't center around personalities. And we don't center around styles. And we don't demand our preferences. And if we don't get our preferences, we walk away and go somewhere else where they'll give us our preferences. This is not a Burger King Baptist church where you can have it your way. <laughs> this is the church where we recognize that he is the head of the church. He is the groom and we are the bride. He is the master and we are his servants. And it doesn't matter who is standing in this pulpit if they're proclaiming the word of God. We ought to be gathering and helping the church in unity to move forward into what God has given the church to do. Are you with me? Apostle Paul comes in this letter and he begins by going right at the thing that you wouldn't think he would take up until later on in the letter. He comes right in the very beginning of the letter and says, look, you have been a blessed church with so many benefits that have been bestowed upon you. And there is no reason for you to be divided amongst yourselves in this way over personalities and over styles. I am pleading with you. I am pleading with you to come together into unity with one another because what really matters most is Jesus Christ. People come and go. Styles come and go. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And he never, ever changes. I'm going to finish here. I'm not finished with this message. I'm going to finish it next week. I'm going to finish here by pointing something out to you. Fourteen times in 17 verses, 14 times in 17 verses, you find the name Christ. If you were to go from verse 1 to verse 17, 14 times out of those verses, you find Christ. If you do that through the entire epistle of 1 Corinthians, you find that there are 69 times in the book of 1 Corinthians where he talks about Christ. It's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ. Church, it's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ. We have to be a church that is about Christ. We have to be a church that's centered on Jesus. Maybe you're sitting in this room and you're listening to my voice and you came today. You didn't know what the message was going to be. You didn't, uh, you didn't know exactly what the subject matter would be. But you've been hurt by a church. It's the reason why you haven't come to faith in Jesus. You saw a church splinter into nothing. Don't you love it when they splinter into nothing? They end up going and calling themselves Harmony Baptist Church or whatever the name may be that indicates some kind of unity. By the way, there are Harmony Baptist Churches that are good churches. I'm talking about the people that split up and they disintegrate into all of these little cells that go everywhere and the church ceases to exist. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that sad? That we can't be churches that stay focused on Jesus. 69 times in the letter of 1 Corinthians, 14 times in the first 17 verses of 1 Corinthians, it's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ. And maybe you've been in one of those churches or you've known about one of those churches and the reason you haven't yet trusted in Jesus as your Savior is because you were offended by, by something some church did to you. you. You are offended by the way Christians sometimes act. Well, I've got good news for you. It's not just 21st century Christians that act that way. It's first century Christians that act that way sometimes. We're not alone. We're all human. We're all frail. We're all falling. We're all fallen men and women. You have to deal with these kinds of things in a fallen world, but you've stayed away from receiving Christ because, well, I saw how those Christians treated each other over there. Listen, friends, don't go to hell because the church had a fight and they split up and splintered into nothing. Don't go to hell because some Christians were arguing and fussing with each, over, uh, 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 with each other over non-essentials, over personalities and style. Don't go to hell because somebody in a church somewhere offended you along the way. Don't look at those people. They can't save you anyway. You've got to look to Jesus and to Jesus alone.